Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. Like many folks around the country, you might have spent the last three evenings watching the Washington documentary series on the History Channel. Documentaries are a form of public history, which we might loosely define as making historical knowledge available and accessible for the public's benefit. My colleagues and I at Mount Vernon think about how to do this work a lot. How can we create frameworks for public understanding of the past that balances expertise with accessibility? At the Washington Library's recent open house, for example, I gave a talk on King George III, that other major George during the American Revolution, and how he interpreted the rebellion and his motivation for defending his and Parliament's authority. So I had to find ways to talk about the development of, say, the British Constitution since the 17th century and natural law in ways that wouldn't overwhelm my general audience. And despite the work that I do now here at the Washington Library, I was never trained as a public historian. So I wanted to talk to someone who was. On today's episode, Jeanette Patrick joins me to discuss her efforts to make the Washingtons, Mount Vernon, and their respective histories engaging for the public. Patrick is Mount Vernon's digital researcher and writer, which is another way of saying public historian, and she is responsible for a goodly portion of the historical content you'll find on our websites. You'll hear Patrick describe some of the ways in which Mount Vernon decides which public history projects to pursue and how she herself became a public historian. Now, before we begin, I just want to say a personal thank you to those of you who came to my lecture the other day and for the kind words you expressed about the podcast and our recent guests. And with that, let's do some public history at Mount Vernon with Jeanette Patrick. Jeanette Patrick, you are one of the uh, essential people here at Mount Vernon who helps distribute content to the public and to helps, yes. helps bring people into Mount Vernon, digitally speaking. Um, and then sometimes, by virtue of your work, through the front door of the mansion. So can you give us a sense of um, uh, what your role is here at Mount Vernon? What exactly do you do? And I can never get your title right, so maybe we should start with that. Absolutely. Um, so my title is the Digital Researcher and Writer in the Media and Communications Department. Um, and so most of what I do is create digital content, um, often for the website. Sometimes it's scripts for YouTube videos or other larger videos. Um, sometimes it's audio tour stops. Um, sometimes it's a timeline or a quiz. So it's just a wide variety of formats of researching and writing content about our topic areas that hopefully the public finds interesting and engaging. So how did you get into this line of work? Where did, where did this um, interest, I guess this is appropriately called public history, come from? Um, I, I think I've always enjoyed history. Um, it was something that I, I loved museums as a child. I loved going to the national park sites, especially the history ones. Um, and then I got to undergrad and had decided that getting a degree in history wasn't practical and that a smart practical degree was business, so I didn't take any history classes my first semester, mm -hmm. and it was terrible. Um, and then <laughs> the second semester of undergrad, I took a historiography class because that met a couple of requirements. Mm -hmm. And I realized that if I enjoyed learning that end of the history world, mm -hmm. that I probably needed to get a degree in history. So what, what is a historiography course? Uh, in that class, um, I had to memorize how to do footnotes and bibliographies. Like a large part of the class was a test that was, we got a list of sources and had to cite from memory. Um, 
Ooh. which seems pointless. But, but, um, but then it was also just evaluating sources, mm-hmm. looking at you know, the, the history of the topic, mm-hmm. um, as you would expect in historiography. Um, the history of history. Exactly, yes. Um, and so from then on, I just... So this was like a, a methods course. Yes. In a lot of ways. Yeah. Introductory, you know, here's how historians have argued about the past topics yes. previously. Here's how you do your footnotes. Um, here's how to read a bibliography or construct a bibliography. Sort of like the, the essential things that we're supposed to do. Yes. But most of us simply put in, insert footnote here, yeah. and then later we can't remember what the hell we were supposed to actually cite. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. All right. So you decided that um, business, a business degree was not necessarily for you, and you yes. started to change gears. Yeah. Right. So how did you start to think about, or what did you start to think about in terms of potential career paths? Um, so I went to a very small liberal arts school in northern rural Missouri, Truman State University, um, with a very small kind of traditional history mm-hmm. department. There was no public history. There's one social historian. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had absolutely no idea. I, yeah. was, I was getting a degree. Decided that I had no plans for how to function as an adult after undergrad. So, mm-hmm. so I took the Jerry and started <laughs> applying to grad schools to get another degree in history because I enjoyed it and had not figured out what kind of job I mm-hmm. wanted to get mm-hmm. yet. Um, and so I started looking at public history programs, um, but I wasn't quite sure exactly what type of public history I was interested in, or um, I enjoyed the research end, but I also enjoy writing for audiences that aren't academic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up picking a program that I earned a master's in history um, with a concentration in public history. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd still kept that. My classes were all still very much like mostly history focused with some mm-hmm. public history woven in. Um, Where was this? At James Madison. Oh, nice. Right up the road. Well, yeah. sort of. Not too far. Right up the mountains. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Well, can you talk a little bit about the kind of coursework you did in your public history classes? And I ask selfishly for my own benefit uh, because a lot of the work I do here in my job is very public-facing. I mean, we're on a podcast, so we're, we're talking to the public, hopefully many of you. Um, but I had no formal training in public history. I had training in digital history, which there are many overlaps. Uh, and public history is an extremely valuable enterprise because it helps um, not only historians, but more importantly, just the regular general public um, engage with the past. What, so what kind of things were you learning? What, what was your coursework like that helped you eventually land this position? Um, so in grad school, uh, each semester, in addition to two more traditional history MA classes, there was a public history class. And so one of them was on digital history um, and looking at that side of the public history world. Another was on um, the history and evolution of museums and kind of what museum careers looked like. Another I took was on preservation Mm -hmm. um, and just kind of a broad overview of what that part of um, history looks like. And then... Oh, and then another one was just like an intro to public history where we generally discussed mm-hmm. kind of the broad topics within public history. So there was some oral history. There was some um, 
a lot was museum focused, a little archival focused, um, but it was more a lot of readings that helped me broadly understand the field. Um, and then while in grad school, I interned in the education department of the National Archives um, down on the mall and um, kind of got a good understanding of like what museum education mm-hmm. um, was really like. And that's my first job was then in museum education. And I've slowly learned that I like interacting with people a lot less than books. So <laughs> I enjoy that in my current role, I spend a lot of time interacting with sources and not mm-hmm. the public. So another way to put that is you like dead people more than you mm-hmm. like the living. Yes, uh, exactly. But you're still speaking to the living. Yes, yes. By communing with the dead. Absolutely, every day. So how did you, uh, so talk, talk to me about some of the, the lessons that you learned in your public history programs and how did you apply them to that internship in the National Archives? I feel like a lot of what I learned in some of my grad school classes um, was figuring out how to write for different audiences, mm-hmm. um, even though my graders were always an academic audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to figure out um, how to create engaging history that wasn't a traditional term paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the National Archives, I created like a one-hour hands-on experience for school groups. Um, and so how they could interact with primary sources and find them fun and engaging um, and how, figuring out how to select primary sources um, that someone who has no contextual knowledge of the mm-hmm. topic can look at them, engage with them, and get something meaningful out of it without needing to have read a paper, an mm-hmm. article, or a book um, to go with it. How do, you, how do you achieve that kind of, of balance of giving folks the relevant information that they need without overwhelming them. In a lot of ways, we are often just writing to ourselves as opposed to, you know, writing to an eighth grade school child who's coming to Mount Vernon or Monticello or Montpelier or or name your historical site for the first time. And you're trying to explain to them, you know, something about, let's say, 18th century agriculture or, uh, you know, slavery or another topic that they might have some sense about, but they don't you know they don't care about historiography they don't care about they don't care about the you know the the rise of social history in the 1980s and the you know the spatial turn in the early 2000s and um words like hegemony um so how do you how do you how do you create a voice that speaks to these groups that conveys a lot of the knowledge that we have gained over the past 30 years but is not a lengthy seminar on a very specific topic. I try not to use words like hegemony. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, the classic example. Yes. Um, or, and especially, I do a lot of work with the preservation staff here helping to convey their work. Mm-hmm. Um, so if using a term that they think is important to the, the story we're telling, you know, making sure it's defined, are there enough mm-hmm. context clues that someone who doesn't understand what sand painting is can suddenly mm-hmm. understand it. Um, but I think a lot of it comes to the stories and figuring out what is that engaging topic or entry point into the bigger narrative um, and finding that personal connection or figuring out how you know, s- someone like farming, they might 
have never set foot on a farm today, mm-hmm. but they eat food. Right. Um, and so figuring out what the entry point is to um, the engaging part of the story and then starting to weave in th- the rest of the history um, and just ensuring that it's written in a way that doesn't talk down to the audience, mm-hmm. but is engaging and is still that high level of research, um, but is at Mount Vernon, we don't write in quite a conversational tone, but mm-hmm. it's definitely not an academic mm-hmm. voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just finding the balance between, you know, including footnotes in that non-academic voice yeah. so that when we do have, you know, people using our research, it's still clear that it is well-researched, but that the average person who saw the exciting title on Facebook and mm-hmm. clicked in to read, you know, wants to keep reading because it's an interesting story. Mm-hmm. So who who would be the primary audience for Mount Vernon's public content? So most of what I create is for like a history aficionado type audience. So it's someone who is interested in history or George Washington or Mount mm-hmm. Vernon or is aware of our organization to some extent um, and wants to learn more. Um, for the most part, I don't write to our educational audience. Mm-hmm. It's more of an adult audience that is just interested in history um, or some sort of topic that is related to what they do. They might be interested in, you know, food history or they Mm -hmm. might be interested in fashion and then they somehow end up in our world because it's connected to their own interests. So you're not, uh, by education, do you mean you're not writing for school children, that population? Correct. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I'm writing, yeah, for an adult audience. Mm not a traditional K through 12 audience mm-hmm. for the most part. But I would say most of what we're writing for the adult audience, the high school student could consume mm-hmm. and be completely comfortable like understanding and using. And so you've got versatile content then that, that could go to different audiences. So how do you, how do you choose which projects to work on? Is, you know, is that, do you gauge that by surveys? You do gauge that by just you know things that are going on at the estate or in, in broader popular conversation. It is a variety of many of those things. Um, the digital marketing team has done a lot of audience research around um, the people who get our emails, our like our history content emails, what topics they're interested mm-hmm. in, um, and then there's also been research done with our social media audiences, and so we have a general idea of which topics they find the most engaging. Um, And so we try and create content um, that we think people will enjoy reading. Um, But then we also look at where there's holes in the content we have on our website um, and work to fill those, Mm -hmm. Um, or just looking at the broader conversations that are happening and figuring out what, as a museum, you know, should we be creating content around Mm -hmm. because the public is in need of that research and we know that the public tends to trust museums. So Mm -hmm. how can we help support the general conversation. So what's a good example of a project you've worked on recently that's been responsive to these kinds of inquiries or has been responsive to conversations happening in the public? Um, I think a good example of that is we have a lot of people who um, are, believe that George Washington could never have freed his enslaved people because of Virginia laws mm-hmm. um, during his life. Um, and so while at different points of his life, it's true he could not have Um, easily freed his enslaved community. Um, Later in his life, he could have. Mm -hmm. Um, There becomes a point where Virginia passes laws, and it's now um, 
much easier for him to do so. Um, and so we this, get a, the ones under his control. Yes, yes. That he legal, just, legally owns. Yeah. Just the Washington owned, not the Custis estates. Mm-hmm. Um, Dowers enslaved. Um, and so we we got a lot of questions on social media or people, you know, feeling like, you know, Washington could never have freed these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in response to that, I spent a lot of time looking at kind of the legal legislation of history of slavery in the United States and created a timeline that looks at, mm-hmm. you know, at what point in our national history could Washington have freed his enslaved people? Um, and so that is now a tool that exists on our website that mm-hmm. it can then be used to help answer these questions um, and to help people better understand that he actually could have done so much earlier than he did. So it was not a question of, uh, or, or did people think that he was acting illegally or they were they were searching to, for reasons why he didn't do so sooner? I think the latter, searching mm-hmm. for reasons why he had not done so sooner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But he did have a, a legislative um, foundation for doing so. Yes. In the end. Yes. Yes, it was completely legal. So you mentioned earlier that one of the jobs you do here is to actually write scripts for videos. Uh, what kind of videos are you producing in conjunction with, you know, a whole team of other people? But, um, you know, what are you after with that kind of content? Um, so with script writing, I often help take our academic research and like of the webpage, repackage it into a video script that is, you know, at an at a level where um, our social media audience will find it engaging. And so, um, last February, we created a series of four videos, each around a different person who had been enslaved at Mount Vernon during Washington's life. And um, so, I worked with our content experts, and we rewrote some of their academic research to be two to three minute long videos that explored the life or part of the life of these four individuals. Um, And then I worked with the woman who was actually going to be speaking the videos to make sure that she felt like the tone still um, came across in the same storytelling manner we wanted them to be conveyed. So, you know, making sure that if we are doing something that feels more like storytelling, we are still ensuring that it's always accurate. So how do you how do you make some of those decisions about which videos to produce? Because you know these days, you're competing for eyeballs. You're dealing with Netflix. You're not dealing with Disney Plus. Um, you know, so people are just binging The Mandalorian at this point. So how do you convince them not to, you know, n- not to spend their time watching what happens after Return of the Jedi, and spend time. You know, with Brenda Parker and and her team working on the enslaved lives of people here at Mount Vernon. So with all of our content, we kind of look um, long range and we try and think about what content um, will be useful at different times of the year. Um, maybe what, you know, starting in February of 2020, we're going to see even more content around mm-hmm. elections because it's an election year. So thinking about, you know, where do we fit into conversations that are happening? Um, and so with videos and web content, we we look long term and we try and create content that we think people will find engaging. We think mm-hmm. that, that will help answer questions um, and that, I mean, sometimes it is, yeah, figuring out what 
you know, what suddenly happened this week that we need to respond to, um, or, you know, like a tree falling on the estate that is an 18th century tree. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's looking further, and um, we have a video that should come out this February um, that looks at um, when 17 members of the enslaved community escaped um, to a British ship during oh, the Revolution. The Revolutionary War. Um, and so... You know, that one is a longer-term project, and we've been working on it. Um, And the plan is to release it in February um, as part of Black History Month. Um, And so, you know, it's but it's it's going back to that content research to figure out what does our audience want to engage with, which topics Mm -hmm. do they find interesting. Um, And who is the content primarily aimed at? I mean, in the in the the web-based text you were talking about earlier, you know, it was an educated adult audience. Strikes me that videos would have greater utility across different age groups, and so what are you? What is your sense about that? Yeah, our videos definitely go for a wider audience than a lot of our web content does. Um, so we, based on the topic, we kind of think about who the audience um, might be or should be. Or um, we created a video series last year that looked at the history of 18th century chocolate. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was being specifically created for an upper elementary, middle school age school group because that's when it fell within their curriculum. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that had a different tone than um, the videos that Brenda Parker did discussing the lives of these individuals who'd been enslaved. Um, And so sometimes it's topic or content-based, the tone changes. Sometimes we do a series of videos. Um, So we'll often do author interviews, and those are going to be a much more serious adult audience, Um, whereas we have a series called Ask Mount Vernon, and we have children asking questions Mm -hmm. about the estate, and the answers are then targeted at a level that these children can answer. Um, So with the videos, it the tone and audience changes much more frequently. Do you ever get suggestions from teachers or requests from teachers about um, you know videos that that they might find useful in the classroom? We work closely with Mount Vernon's education department to make sure that if we have holes in our content, we're working um, to fill them. So one hole we identified earlier this year was that we don't have a lot of content about the specific articles of the Constitution on our website. Mm-hmm. Um, and teachers spend a lot of time studying, you know, teaching, especially the first three articles of the Constitution. Um, and so we're working on a video series with you um, <laughs> <laughs> and Kevin um, to, you know, help explain in a, you know, school age appropriate voice what each of the articles mm-hmm mean. Um, so that way we can help support um, those teaching standards. What projects would you like to work on? I mean, I know in a lot of ways, a lot of the work we do here is, is guided um, way beyond our pay grade. Um, but you know, we all have our own interests and uh, inclinations. And so you know, what are some of the things that, that you would like to pursue in your role here? Uh, so a big part of why I do history is to find the stories of people who couldn't tell their stories or whose stories have never been told. Um, And so anytime I can continue to add to our knowledge base around the enslaved community, I really enjoy spending time doing that. Um, I also 
I'm happy that we are starting to explore the Native American Mm-hmm. communities that were at Mount Vernon, um, but then also Washington's relationships um, with different Native peoples and nations throughout his life and especially his presidency. Um, and so I think looking at those topics that have often been ignored or avoided are where I like to spend um, a lot of my time. And then the Mount Vernon Ladies Association is a very interesting group to research around, mm-hmm. and there hasn't been a ton of research done on them. They're definitely individuals who are doing a lot, but um, I think that there's they are another very interesting group of people who mm-hmm. we don't spend a lot of time talking about, um, but who have a lot of very interesting stories. Well, speaking of then, how do you how do you keep up with current scholarship? Because a lot of a lot of what we do is informed by what historians are writing, what other public figures are writing. You know, how do you keep up these days with? seemingly endless amounts of books. And then, you know, knowledge comes out through all the different media, as you know, blog posts, um, long-form essays in the Atlantic, Twitter, um, Facebook, I guess. At this, you know, Facebook, not so much anymore. But, um, you know, there, there are different avenues where new ideas, new arguments are coming at you. How do you, um, how do you download it all and, and consider it? I spend a lot of time reading. Um, (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Which is great. Um, I think one thing that I love about working at Mount Vernon is that I have access to so many content experts who are also trying to stay engaged. Um, So there's the um, Historic Preservation and Collections team Mm -hmm. who, you know, are experts in their fields and who are always happy to share, you know, their new methods or research. and, you know, so conversations with them. And then the Washington Library, we also have um, 18th century Washington experts. Um, but then the wonderful stream of fellows that are always mm-hmm. coming through um, and talking about their new research and talking about, you know, what is new in their specific area of the field. Um, so I think having that constant contact with so many people who are engaged in slightly different aspects of the field mm-hmm. makes it easier Um to stay up to date, but it is. It's. I mean, I think that's all historians spend a lot of time mm-hmm. reading and knowing that they're not going to know it all and trying to figure out which which channels of information you mm-hmm. need to most pay attention to. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. I think because there is a lot of pressure to constantly read and keep up, and it, sometimes it can feel overwhelming. But I think once you reach that point of serenity where you realize you're never going to get it all and you should just read what other people would think of the best stuff or the most interesting and well the most not not necessarily the most interesting but the most relevant people to talk to um, and and engage with then then you're doing a good job yes yeah i'm finding out when you don't know the answer who who in your network does know the answer Mm -hmm. and you know having having them help anytime that just, even if it's just like, which sources should I be looking right. at, you know? Yeah. Right. Which book should I read instead of me spending aimless hours Googling yes. topics? Um, so as we started this morning, you know, you described uh, one career path that suddenly took a different direction into history. So if somebody out there who is an undergraduate or, um, or even a graduate student who is figuring out their options as a professional historian and they want to do what you do, 
what advice would you give them? I feel like being flexible is incredibly important. Um, not just in my writing style, but knowing um, that, you know, topics change or, you know, like part of why I love what I do um, in the two museums that I've worked at that I've really enjoyed is that I've gotten to change topics and time periods so much within the content that I'm drilling in on. Um, and so I think that being flexible with with the areas you're researching is important, um, but then also in the the outcome of that research. Mm-hmm. Um, I might know that we need to create a piece of content on a specific topic, but a lot of it is doing the research and figuring out what is the best mm-hmm. format for this. Is it a timeline? Is it an article? Is it a video? Um, and just being okay with you know, how do we best communicate the information, um, I think is really important. I was really fortunate in the first job I had outside of grad school um, that it was a small organization, but I got to do a lot of big different things. And so um, I worked some in their education department. I worked some doing public programs. I like, and where was this? This is the National Women's History Museum, which is a digital museum working to build a physical museum in D.C. Oh, um, that's so interesting. So at American Women's History. Um, and so it's a very small staff. And I um, I spent, I like, I edited a series of children's books on women's history. I oh, cool. researched and wrote a walking tour and then managed the tour guides. Um, and so it was it was great that I got to be in all of these different projects and kind of figure out what what I really enjoy doing. And I figured out that I we did a big, we rebuilt the website and had to transfer all the content and I got to restructure everything. And I, like, I really enjoy getting to mm-hmm. build and create, not just writing, but the, the end result of my research. And so it helped me when I then came to Mount Vernon know that like I wanted to research and create the content, but I also wanted to be responsible for that like end product. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely am not editing videos because I do not know how to do that, but I get to build web pages or I get mm-hmm. to um, you know help if I am writing a video script with the pro- the final product. what What are your top ten tips for organizing a website? or maybe not top ten, but you know what how, how do you make knowledge visually appealing? when it's not simply just yeah. a map or a, a portrait or a photograph? Uh, so I think some of it does come down to, like, what is the imagery you can put on the page? Um, working in the 18th century, like, we don't have historic photographs. Mm-hmm. On, you know, like, that's that's not an option. Um, so not th- yet. Yeah. Um, so thinking about, you know, what, how can we illustrate um, the content or, or can we? Um, that's a question that as we're getting into thinking more about how we can talk more about Native Americans, mm-hmm. I have been trying to figure out, like, how do we put imagery on the website if we don't, if we don't know if it's accurate, if it's appropriate? Mm-hmm. Um, we see it the same when we're working with um, creating content around the enslaved community. What, what is the best way to depict it? And so I think... With the enslaved community, we have found that objects can often be very helpful in telling that story mm-hmm. um, because there have been a lot of objects found um, through archaeology on Mount Vernon um, and then also objects that 
while the Washington family might have owned them, they were being used mm -hmm. um, by the enslaved workers. Um, and so I think it's it's figuring out, yeah, how do you make a page visually engaging? How do you make a page skimmable? Because a lot of people don't want to read mm -hmm. um, the entire thing. Um, how do you play within the world of Google and SEO? Um, so Search engine optimization. Thank you. Um, and, you know, thinking about the importance of headings because Google really likes to crawl headings, mm -hmm. but they don't like crawling body text as much. And so finding the balance of how you make something, like, comfortable to read mm -hmm. on a desktop or on the phone, um, but also still have all of the visual. It's it, it, you, you just spend a lot of time like rearranging mm -hmm. web content until it looks good. Well, and the ch technology changes so fast, you've yes. got to constantly adopt or adapt to those changing trends. Yes. And then Google, who rules us all. Yes. <laughs> and then you have to pay attention because then, like, all the social media platforms will change their algorithms mm -hmm. and how they prioritize their content. And so, are we fighting a losing battle? I mean, I. Sometimes I think about that. You know, we we have this discussion off camera a lot about subject headings and whatnot, and I am less of a fan of them because I want people to read the content, but I understand that Google doesn't really care about the actual content. Um, I don't we think just, we just give in to our, our technology overlords and surrender? Or what? I mean, I don't think it's a losing battle because if you figure out their their game you end up with more readers. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, we know most of our web traffic comes through organic search. And so, you know, making sure that the terms we use, French and Indian War versus Seven Years War, mm -hmm. you know, what are people Googling more? And yeah. people substantially Google French and Indian War over Seven Years War. So that's why it's still the heading on our website. On the next podcast, we'll talk about the differences between the Seven Years War and the French and Indian War. <laughs> and then on the webpage, we explain <laughs> the differences between them. But it's, you know, so I think if we were to change that heading on the website to be, I don't know that it's more accurate, to fall within current scholarship, mm -hmm. we would lose a lot of readers. Um, and so I think I think we just have to figure out the current trend in these algorithms mm -hmm. so that we can, because our goal is to educate people, mm -hmm. so figure out how to play the game so we can educate the most people. So we shouldn't hate the player, we should hate the game. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> to use a early 2000s term uh, yes. for courtship. It's almost the Washington's wedding anniversary. It is. Yes, January 6th. January 6th. Uh, well, Jeanette, thank you very much um, for giving us an inside look at what you do here as a public historian at Mount Vernon. And uh, we're looking forward to the next round of videos, uh, web content, and figuring out how to play Google's game. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Mason Shelby was our sound engineer. Our theme music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.